Hello and welcome to Retro Spectacus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 68, Mr. Windsor Castle Fire. So, Tom. Yes? Ready to record some more Retrospecticus? Yes! Why do you talk that way? I had a stroke! Okay, let's deal with the elephant in the room. So, um, yes, the reason why we haven't recorded for about nine months now is because I had a stroke. Yes, during the last episode, I sounded a bit strange and I said that's because I had some dental work done. I did have some dental work done, but I'm now under the impression that that was just a coincidence because as well as having, you know, slurred speech, I also had difficulty keeping my balance and a few other things. Um, My hand was a bit wobbly. I couldn't go and see my GP straight away because of how GPs are in this country at the moment. It's very difficult to get an appointment for anything. So I filled out a form online and my doctor uh, read it and said, oh, that doesn't sound good, you better come in. So I went to the GP, he referred me to the local hospital where they ran some tests on me, including an MRI scan. And they went, yeah, you've, you've, you've got a pontine hematoma. And as, as I understand it, that meant that there was a sort of broken blood vessel in my brain somewhere realised it was a lot worse than I thought it was. After my stay in hospital, I think I got a lot worse. I then had another MRI scan before Christmas. The surgeon saw me after Christmas. My second scan was a lot worse than my first scan. So what I think happened is um, something burst between my initial going to hospital and my second scan. So that's why I think I got a lot worse. But over the last few months, I've been slowly getting better. I've just been noticing little things like um, the other night I was reading to my daughter and I suddenly found that I could do the funny voices. Uh, another little thing, a little fidget that I have is to sort of practice bowling at cricket. And I found myself doing that the other day. So I thought, OK, yep, yeah, that's something that um, I couldn't do, but I can do now. And I can write again, not as well as I could before, but my handwriting has improved a lot. So I'm not 100%, but I'm a lot better than I was. And hopefully I'm ready to record some more podcasts. Excellent. Well, I think all that remains for me to say then is, hey, hey, listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history back together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Bat dance when we bat dance. Plough who we plough. Oh no, wait, sorry, that should be plough what we plough. I (laughs) apologise for any effects. Now... Once in a great while, we are privileged to experience a podcast event so extraordinary, it becomes part of our shared heritage. 2004, Ben Hammersley invents the podcast. 2018, Conan O'Brien invents the podcast. Again. (laughs) Then, for a long time, nothing happened. 
Until tonight, behold the future of podcasting as Retrospecticus finally get to Season 4, Episode 9, Mr. Plow, which originally aired on November the 19th, 1992. And for the history, I'm going to be talking about the big fire at the Royal Residence Windsor Castle, which broke out on November the 20th, 1992, the day after Mr. Plough first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, November 19th, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry, what was the UK number one that week? It's... Would I Lie to You by Charles and Eddie, which, if you have a long memory, you'll unfortunately remember I jumped the gun with last time. They finally dethroned Boys to Men, so I feel like I've robbed them of their moment with this. With a top five stuffed with things we've already talked about, and a thing we absolutely will be talking about very soon, I'm dropping down to number 31 for Poing by Rotterdam Termination Source. No, no. No, not even I can justify that one. Although if you'd like it on the Spotify playlist as a bonus, drop us a tweet. Let's go instead to number eight, which brings us to Vanessa Paradis with Be My Baby. Born in Paris, France in 1972, Vanessa was a child star and a triple threat, being as she is a singer-slash-model-slash-actor, which qualifies her for a slashy award. One of the very few she hasn't won by the looks of it, Seriously, she's a list of awards and nominations as long as your arm, including a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, which I think is roughly equivalent to an MBE. If anyone knows, actually I don't really care that much. Vanessa had her first hit single at age 14 back in 1987, Jo Le Taxi, which was a French language song and did unexpectedly well in the UK and Ireland. Be My Baby was in English and was written by Lenny Kravitz who is described very tactfully on Wikipedia as her companion. <laughs> but bizarrely, the single was slightly less successful than Jean Le Taxi, peaking at number six here and in Ireland with a European best of number two in Belgium. I do remember this being a big thing at the time, and certainly Parody was being positioned as the next huge pop star, but it just kind of didn't materialise in the end, which is a bit of a shame as on this evidence, she was perfectly fine as a singer and performer. Sadly, she's probably best known internationally for her relationship with Johnny Depp than any of her artistic pursuits, and frankly, that should never be the case. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.6 million, approximately 13.6 million households, and Fox's top show for the week, beating Married with Children. The production number was 9F07, and the credited writer is John Vitti, as we discussed way back in episode 2, Bart the Storming of the Stasi HQ. The chalkboard gag is, a burp is not an answer. And the couch gag is, there's no couch, just a small wooden chair, which the family somehow finds a way to fit on. And, pausing only to note that six days later at WWF Survivor Series 1992, future Simpsons guest star Brett Hitman Hart will defeat the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels in a World Champion versus Intercontinental Champion match, before awkwardly celebrating in the ring with Santa Claus. <laughs> One of many Christmas-based wrestling incidents that I discussed with friend of the podcast Ben Baker in his podcast series Ben Baker's Christmas Box last December. Please do check it out. We finally ask, what actually happened in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to... 
Watch Carnival of the Stars live from Hawaii's beautiful Molokai Island. It's not just for lepers anymore. And with that kind of verve in the delivery, you know it's presented by Troy McClure, who you might remember from such films as The Erotic Adventures of Hercules and Dial M for Murderousness. At Moe's, Homer can't believe the stars can punish their bodies so badly in the name of entertainment, but is happy to mortgage his future health to down a jar of pickle brine. Krusty briefly appears to promote a film about his own Perkadan addiction by unsuccessfully tiger-taming, with assumedly fatal results. But Marge wants Homer back as it started to snow very heavily, and of course Homer is driving. As Bill and Marty make snow puns, Homer struggles to see, and inevitably totals both his car and another. Unfortunately, the other is Marge's, on his own driveway. Total disaster insurance will cover it, but not if he was drunk. Luckily, he is able to convince the rep that he was at a pornography store buying pornography. <laughs> Time to buy a new vehicle. To do so, Homer hitches a ride on a truck full of watermelons with a pig riding up front. He takes it to perhaps my favourite one-shot location in Simpsons history, Crazy Vaclav's House of Automobiles. There, he attempts to test drive a car from a country that no longer exists, but will go 300 hectares on a single tank of kerosene, but can't get it started, despite being urged to put it in H. <laughs> so it's off to the auto show, where we have to ask, do you come with the car? Oh, you. Bart gets to try out Bonnie and Clyde's death car with financially beneficial results, and Lisa uncovers some very poor human rights practices of Fourth Reich Motors. And then, it happens. Homer spies the 60s Batmobile, and beside it, Adam West, television's Batman. He is dismayed when Bart and Lisa say he's not Batman. We were a mere five months removed from Michael Keaton's second outing as the Cape Crusader at this stage, and with no way of knowing it would be his last. An increasingly intense rant about the modern Batman leads to the family backing away, straight into a ploughing truck. Homer pictures himself mowing down protesters on the White House lawn at the behest of his later nemesis, George H.W. Bush, and the rep tells him he can clear his monthly payments by charging to plough people's driveways. A couple of whiplash sound effects later, it's ploughing time. After Marge complains, he promises he'll never do anything stupid again and promptly walks into the truck's door. It doesn't start well when his flyers are blown away, although Barney has worse trouble promoting a baby goods store when his nappy blows off just in time for him to bump into his mother. After Homer hits a new low promoting his business in a church sermon, though not as low as his low, low prices, of course, he decides to buy an advert on an obscure local television channel after seeing his new friend from the last episode, Captain McAllister, promoting his album of sea shanties and hornpipe fever. It shows around 3.17am, is poorly constructed, but has a very catchy jingle, and Homer's flashy jacket really helps. Against the odds, it seems to start the ball rolling, with at least three customers initially taking advantage of his services. Tom, what places do we see in this montage? Uh, the Quickie Mart. Yes. The Retirement Castle. Yep. And Bart School. Absolutely. Congratulations. The last of these earns Bart a vicious snowballing and Homer the key to the city and a free beer from Moe, who didn't even give a freebie to some freed Iranian hostages as they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Barney is jealous of Homer's success, so Homer gives him a pep talk and returns home to Marge, 
who asked him to wear the Mr. Plough jacket in the boudoir. Apparently the next day, although I reckon maybe a week might have gone by off screen, just to get all the practicalities of this scenario sorted, Homer goes out to plough, but all the drives are ploughed already. By the plough king, none other than Barney, who took Homer's pep talk in his stride but clearly had no ideas of his own, so just does what Homer did but with a bigger truck. And then he shoots out Homer's tyres, in the spirit of friendly competition. Back at Moe's, they all watch the Plough King's advert, which features him and Linda Ronstadt smashing a cardboard cutout of Homer before the latter sings a jingle that accuses Homer of alcoholism. Which is very rich coming from Barney, although in flashback we discover that Homer introduced Barney to beer just before an important exam, beginning his lifelong obsession with the beverage. I still don't think anything after that is Homer's fault, but there we go. After failing to win business from Flanders and Adam West, Homer is in serious trouble, having to resort to telling bailiffs that he's Tony Dow from Leave It to Beaver rather than the Mr. Plough who ploughs driveways. He tries a new advert, although he's discouraged from doing a rap. He goes to an agency run by the guy who invented those adverts where two people yammer back and forth at each other, punches said guy, but still contracts him to create an advert which turns out to be a pretentious mess. The final humiliation is Homer having to give the key to the city back so it can be awarded to Barney. But then Homer sees a news article about Forbidding Widow's Peak, a particularly snowy Springfield mountain, and formulates an evil plan, sending the Plough King up to the peak to get him out of the way for the day, while Mr Plough cleans up the business in town. So far, not very evil. Except Barney gets into trouble on the peak, leaving Homer on a perilous journey to save his friend. Against all the odds, he succeeds, and the two of them agree to team up, vowing that not even God himself could stop them. However, God himself immediately stops them <laughs> by halting the snowy weather. Homer gets his plough repossessed, but at least he's still got that certain special something, by which we mean the jacket. It's a brilliant episode. It mm -hmm. never gets old for me. I even, when we watched this just before we recorded, I even saw some signs in the protesters in the White House that I'd never seen before. It just continues to deliver. We have reached the promised land of The Simpsons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, with stuff that you only just noticed, I only saw that there was a sign in the motor show that featuring a car that runs on tap water. We do have a, a, a few character debuts to discuss here. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the celebrities. So Linda Ronstadt was born on July 15th, 1946 in Tucson, Arizona. Starting her professional career in a folk trio with two of her siblings, she moved to Los Angeles to integrate rock and roll into her repertoire, joining a group called the Stone Ponies, whose biggest hit, 1967's Different Drum, was written by Mike Nesmith of the Monkees, and I actually know it because the Lemonheads covered it. Oh, okay. They split up in 1968. She went solo and quite quickly became pretty massive, at least on an American concert-going level, being one of the first female acts that could sell out at arena level. She would go on to sell over 100 million records, became the highest-paid woman in rock and arguably the most successful woman in American music throughout the 1970s. She has won 10 Grammys, just the 10 then, and she continued to record and tour until well into the 2000s, when unfortunately, due to the effects of progressive supranuclear palsy, she lost her singing voice. She has, however, continued to perform spoken word tours since. 
And whilst I know I mentioned earlier when talking about Vanessa Paradis that it was a shame she was more well-known for who she dated, I think Linda is well-known enough that I can mention some of her relationships without overshadowing her massive achievements in music. So it's worth noting that she was engaged to George Lucas and dated both Jim Carey and Governor of California Jerry Brown, whose evil intent was immortalised in the Dead Kennedys classic California Uberalis. John Vitti was with her for the recording of her lines for the episode and said that her rendition of the Spanish version of the jingle is the most beautiful thing he has ever heard. That brings us to Adam West. (laughs) Born William West Anderson in 1928 in the amusingly named Walla Walla, Washington. He had a sprinkling of low-profile roles in television and films, including the last of the original Three Stooges movies, and an apparently terrible pilot for a series about Alexander the Great, with none other than William Shatner in the starring role. It wasn't picked up, but it was repurposed into a TV movie when both of them got famous. His fortunes changed when he was cast as Bruce Wayne and Batman in the 1966 television series and film of... Batman. He also appeared as the character in a number of animated series and 1979's TV special Legend of the Superheroes. Unfortunately, much like Shatner, in fact, he struggled to establish himself outside of his signature role for a very long time, although he was apparently considered for the role of James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever. He wanted to play Batman in the 1989 Tim Burton film, in which he was replaced by my generation's iconic Batman, Michael Keaton. He was also considered for Bruce's father, Thomas Wayne, in that film, which I think would have been a nice nod. Not long later, like a great many of the guest stars we talk about here, he started to have a bit of a cult revival, often playing either himself or a washed-up actor that may or may not have played a superhero, including in the 1991 pilot Look Well, written by Conan O'Brien and recently discussed by us for that very reason. But voice acting was his bread and butter going forward, no longer limited to Batman-related media, and aside from The Simpsons, he appeared in Futurama, Kim Possible... Rugrats, Fairly Odd Parents, SpongeBob SquarePants, and Johnny Bravo, but most memorably, of course, Family Guy, where he was in a ton of episodes as Mayor Adam West, sort of playing himself and sort of not. And he was one of the most consistently hilarious actors on that show during its best times. Seth MacFarlane has said he was very careful not to continue to typecast him and keep it away from Batman references and this would seem to shine through in the joy of his performances. Adam passed away from leukaemia in 2017, though due to the nature of voice recording, he actually appeared on Family Guy five more times posthumously. And, of course, we also meet Crazy Varklav this episode. Quoted in different places as being voiced by Hank Azaria or Harry Shearer, but in more places as it being Shearer, so let's go with him, I suppose. He appears to be of Eastern European descent, runs Crazy Varklav's House of Automobiles, and never appears again. It's a shame. He has become one of the most heavily memed one-off characters in Simpsons history. Any attempt to bring him back would only damage his impressive legacy, so let's hope they never try. Oh, and we don't see Barney's mum, but we will do a bit later on in Season 9, Episode 19, Simpson Tide. In a rare occurrence of recent discontinuity... Barney mentions she is dead in Season 20, Episode 3, Double Double Boy in Trouble, but she appears again in Season 32, Episode 22, The Last Barfighter. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. 
Yeah. Okay. Are you ready for some did you knows? Yep. Did you know that Dan Castellaneta won an Emmy for Outstanding Voiceover Performance for his performance as Homer in this episode, adding to the one that he'd won the previous year? In other Emmy news, Mr. Plough and a streetcar named Marge were submitted for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Comedy Series rather than Outstanding Animated Programme. But the Emmy voters were too chicken to have cartoons against live-action programmes, and they didn't get a nomination. The Mr. Plough jingle is based on a radio jingle for a service called Roto-Router, where a rotating cable is used to clear tree roots and other obstructions from drains. The jingle goes... Call Roto Rooter, that's the name, and away go travels down the drain. Now that sounded really familiar to me, and I now remember why. Season 2, episode 18 of Futurama, Why Must I Be a Crustacean in Love, features a service offered by a robot called Robo Rooter, with a similar jingle. Call Robo Rooter when you flush that towel, and we can also help with that impacted bow. Ah, yes, I know what you mean. Carnival of the Stars is based on CBS's Circus of the Stars, an annual special that ran for 19 editions from 1977 to 1994. It did actually feature celebrities doing circus tricks. And I'm I'm half laughing at the idea that this was made in the first place, but I suppose it's no stupider than some of the things that get made these days. Uh, It included Adam West, but did (laughs) not feature Linda Ronstadt. It did also feature Angela Lansbury, but just as a ringmaster, as far as I can tell, no actual hot coal walking occurred. The plough that Homer buys is made by Kumatsu Motors, who bought out Powell Motors back in Season 2, Episode 15, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Cool. The most popular transcription of Crazy Vaclav's second most famous phrase... Zagreb Evdem's Lotic Dev means nothing. It is either a mix of words from real Slavic languages or a very good attempt at making a fake one. Mm. And finally, the Fox censors stepped in to try to remove one line from the episode. That line? Yeah, they were gay. Oh, okay. I'd have thought that they would have tried to remove the... It may be on a lousy channel, but The Simpsons are on TV. <laughs> a very early example of them uh, biting the hand that feeds them there, uh, which would come to be a fantastic tradition. Now, Tom, it is with some trepidation that I ask, uh, I ask for our memeable moments, because this, I believe, could be a special uh, episode of the podcast on its own. Well, it could be, because the episode is basically Walter Wall memes. I think you commented... We were watching and they'd been about eight or nine and we were only five minutes in. So the first one, number one, Mo, don't throw out that brine. The second one is one that I absolutely love. Um, It's said of the most nonchalant, innocent way possible. It's a pornography store. I was buying pornography. There was an episode of a show called Line of Duty on a while ago, I think it's season five, and you see the main character, Ted Hastings, doing all sorts of dodgy stuff, and one of them is disposing of a laptop, and you think, oh, what's he doing getting rid of that laptop? And he's questioned about it in an interview, and he says, I was watching some pornography on it, and of course I immediately thought of that line from (laughs) The Simpsons. 
You, why have you got that computer? Why, why did you dispose of it? I had pornography on it. I was watching pornography. <laughs> anyway, I better hurry up because we're only on number three. Then you've got the farmer with a pig. Uh, the pig appears to be in the driver's side window to start with. And the farmer says, uh, can't trust a pig with watermelons, you know. And then you see how we're eating one. Then for Crazy Vaclav, he's got two, really. Him having Eastern European accents and saying, it no longer exists. Kind of unfortunate in the time we're recording this because we're recording, at the time of recording, Russia has still invaded Ukraine. So that's one of his lines. The other one is, put it in H. Then you've got the motor show where there's loads. The woman who is standing by the car. I believe nowadays you call her a booth babe. I think that's the that's the general term, yes. Yes. Um, so Homer says, do you come with the car? And she goes, oh, you. <laughs> and then the next man says, do you come with the car? And she goes, oh, you. <laughs> then you've got the forthright motors and Lisa pointing out, that's not a dummy. This exhibit is closed. <laughs> And then you've got Adam West's monologue, uh, which is, I love every bit about that. I think that that's the first time that Adam West earned a reputation as being kind of an eccentric, because every time you see him on Family Guy, he's basically how he is in this Simpsons scene, pointing to himself and going, pure West. It's the meme of a thousand uses as it well, because you can, you, can, you can chop that number of ways and still have it be as effective, or you can go for the entire scene mm. if you're feeling ambitious. Yeah, um, the other day I gave him the lemon face and he was saying, pure zest. <laughs> um, then you have the car salesman who goes, your wife, what, what you think I'm going to buy a truck just because you make a noise? I'll take it. Uh, then you got Barney trying to sell stuff, going 20% off lullabies, just tell them Big Baby sent you. Then he loses his diaper and says, oh, hi, Ma. Then you've got their advert uh, where Bart says, you are fully bonded and licensed by the city, aren't you, Mr. Plough? Shut up, boy. I love the animation on that as well, the, the literal side of mouth proclamation mm. from Homer. Brilliant bit. Yeah. And after it's said, Homer says, now we play the waiting game. Our waiting game sucks. Let's play Hungry Hungry Hippos. <laughs> then you've got number 13, which is Marge's Mr. Plough Jacket Kink, I suppose you'd call it. Not, a, not the first time with The Simpsons that Marge will have um, an interesting bedroom turn on, shall we say. She likes having her elbow nibbled, I seem to remember. That's before we even get to the uh, the public nudity that will uh, mm-hmm. bedevil later seasons. Then on a rather Saturday, there's number 14, which is Barney having beer for the first time and going, where have you been all my life? <laughs> then you've got number 15, which I think is great. It's, it's, it sort of exemplifies Homer Simpson. I'll take your money, but I'm not going to plow your driveway. <laughs> yes, I got the biggest laugh in the room when we were watching. Yeah. Then you've got one which is mean a lot. You know those radio ads where two people with annoying voices yammer back and forth? I invented those. <laughs> Bang! 
happens all the time. Then you've got Homer's rather bizarre, surreal commercial, which I think is based on Citizen Kane in some way. And Lisa says, Dad, was that your commercial? Homer replies, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what if there was a, a direct inspiration for that commercial itself, but it, it does strike me very much of, of the era of the uh, the Guinness adverts and kind of and to, to this day, perfume adverts are still mm. incredibly confusing. So, yeah, and then you've got eighteen, where the uh, key to the city is passed to a new generation of snowplow people. Mayor Quimby inspects the key and says, "These look like teeth marks." Well, why was it wrapped in foil? It was never wrapped in foil. <laughs> and then finally, number 19, uh, the filming in search of Bigfoot. Bill, we can see your wristwatch. Ah, oh, darn it. Ugh, 19. I do think that's a new record. Although some recent episodes have run it close. Mm. When I say recent, of course, I mean ones that we looked at nine months ago. But, but <laughs> recent in the scheme of the Simpsons that we've been looking at. Fantastic. So... Post-pandemic lockdown, a lot of us have been discussing the best way to uh, burn rich people's possessions whilst laughing maniacally in the fire. And as it turns out, one such occurrence happened. Yes. Now, I will warn you, Gareth, I know that you're a bit of a Republican, so you're going to hate this story because the (laughs) um, amount of money that's been spent on Winter Castle over the years is astronomical. Okay, so the Winter Castle fire, this is one of those... Everyone can remember where they were moments, a bit like when Princess Diana died in Paris. Everyone can remember what they were doing or where they saw it on TV. I mean, I myself was only 10, but I can remember being home and watching smoke pour out of the turrets whilst watching the news. So before we get to the fire, let's go over the history of Windsor Castle. So after the Norman conquest of England in 1066, you know, 1066 and all that, William the Conqueror, or William the Bastard, if you prefer, uh, he built a ring of Morton Bailey castles around London. The idea was that each one was a day's march from the city, so it could be resupplied with troops if needed. But that begs the question, what is a Morton Bailey castle? Put simply, it's a castle building, and so that's called the keep, on top of a big mound... And that big mound is called the Mott, and it's surrounded by a fortification called the Bailey. Uh, they were popular from around the 10th century onwards because they were easy to construct. Your average peasant could understand the idea of a big pile. Uh, obviously, the keep was a bit more technical. As an example, uh, Clifford's Tower in York is what's left of the York Castle. It's a keep on top of a Mott, with castle buildings around it. So, you know, I went to York as a student. can remember running up to Clifford's Tower, the hill thing that it's on, artificial, and it's a mott. So what about Windsor Castle? Well, it's been built up a lot over nearly a thousand years to where it is today. I'll give a quick overview of it. So first of all, the castle is huge. It's enormous. It covers 484,000 square feet and has over a 1,000 rooms. And a lot of those rooms are enormous in themselves. The overall shape of the castle is roughly a rectangle. More specifically, two rectangles side by side with a circle in the middle. So from the air, it kind of looks like a big bow tie. In the centre is the mot, a mound made from chalk from a nearby ditch. 
On top of the motte is a round tower, and that's the central keep. They are the main features of the middle ward, the original grounds of the castle. At the northernmost part of the motte is the Norman gate. The gate has a tower on each side and was intended to defend the round tower. To the east of the middle ward is the upper ward, where accommodation buildings are to be found where the Queen lives. They form an area known as a quadrangle. Why it said quadrangle, not square, I've no idea. In the northeast corner of the upper ward is the Brunswick Tower, one of the many towers found at the castle. The state apartments are in the north of it, the private apartments of the east, and the south wing is in the, well, south. To the south of the quadrangle is the two-mile-long path to the castle called the Long Walk. That's the path up to the castle with those amazing views. You know, if you see pictures of Windsor Castle, the way it sort of rises up in the distance, those pictures will be taken from the Long Walk. To the west of the Middle Ward is the Lower Ward, which is more religious in nature. In the middle of it is St George's Chapel. It's you tend to think of chapels as being small, but this is a huge church that has seen lots of royal weddings over the years, including the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton back in 2011. That was over 10 years ago now. Good Lord. I mm-hmm. thought it was there as well. <laughs> Around and on top of it are a series of carved heraldic statues known as the Queen's Beasts. And I'll admit, I'm only including that in there because I like the name. <laughs> At the end of the chapel are the horseshoe cloisters, originally built as accommodation for the clergy. Behind that is the curfew tower, where the dungeon used to be. The curfew tower also contains what's called a sally port, a secret exit that could be used in times of siege. To the south of the lower ward is a way into it called the Henry VIII Gate. Outside the castle you'll find some parks and gardens, including the East Terrace Garden. It's just outside the private apartments, so the people who live in them have a very nice view when they wake up. To the east of the castle is the 655-acre home park, which was created in the 19th century. Okay, so the history of Windsor Castle. As I mentioned earlier, it was first built during the reign of William the Conqueror, but it was built as a fortification rather than a residence. Not only was it a day's march from London, it also occupied a strategic position on the River Thames. The castle wasn't really used as a residence until the time of Henry I, the fourth son of William the Conqueror. During that time, the motte suffered from subsidence, although it probably wasn't repaired the half-assed way, and the original wooden keep was replaced with a stone one. The castle saw a significant event near the end of the reign of King John. 1215 saw the barons revolt. In a nutshell, a bunch of powerful English barons weren't happy with the rule of King John, so they rebelled against him. Part of the reason for this was King John sealing, but not implementing, a great treaty called Magna Carta. Magna Carta was sealed at Runnymede, just over the road from Windsor Castle. King John used the castle as his base, but it was damaged by the barons in the siege. In 1348, so skipping quite a bit, in 1348 the Order of the Garter was founded at Windsor Castle by Edward III. This was part of this huge building programme where he spent £51,000, and remember this is 1348, during a time when his yearly income was £30,000, although some of his money came from ransoms. 
The Hundred Years' War was raging, and the style at the time was to fight a battle, capture some nobles, and then hold them to ransom. In 1475, the King Edward IV began construction of St George's Chapel in its current form. After Henry VII came to power following the War of the Roses, he finished the building of the chapel and used the castle extensively, holding a huge feast for the Knights of the Garter shortly after claiming the throne. Of course, Henry VII was succeeded by possibly the most famous king of England, his son Henry VIII. He spent a lot of time at Windsor, hosting great feasts and enjoying the extensive hunting grounds. During the rebellion in the north of England, known as the Pilgrimage of Grace, Henry used Windsor Castle as a base. He also had the North Terrace built and the main gate reconstructed, which is why today that gate is known as Henry VIII Gate. His son, Edward VI, the Boy King, was famously Protestant and disliked the extravagance found at Windsor Castle. During his short reign, he simplified the garter ceremonies, discontinued the feast of the garter and removed a lot of the Catholic paraphernalia found in the castle. After Edward VI died, a woman called Lady Jane Grey claimed the throne for nine days. That's a very interesting story. Before it was claimed by Henry VIII's Catholic daughter, Mary. She continued some modest building work at Windsor Castle, including a fountain in the upper ward. Mary was succeeded by Elizabeth I, who once again used Windsor Castle as a base, and many foreign dignitaries were entertained there. The Shakespeare play, The Merry Wives of Windsor, is about this time. Elizabeth I died without an heir, so James VI of Scotland, a great-great-grandson of Henry VII, became King of England, uniting the two kingdoms. Believe it or not, the size of Windsor became problematic, as there wasn't enough space for James's English and Scottish contingents. 1642 saw the English Civil War between the Royalists and the Parliamentarians. The Parliamentarians took Windsor Castle and looted it. Hooray! Over the course of the war, 100 kilos of gold and silver were taken. At the end of the war, the King Charles I was executed and he was held at Windsor Castle beforehand. After he was dead, his body was returned to Windsor Castle where it was held in a vault beneath St George's Chapel. After the war, there was a period known as the Interregnum, where England was effectively a republic. During this time, Windsor Castle was occupied by squatters. As it should be. Mm -hmm. By the time of the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, the place was a wreck. The king, Charles II, appointed his close relative Prince Rupert as constable of Windsor Castle and he set about restoring it, embarking on extensive building projects. 1688 saw the so-called Glorious Revolution and the Catholic king, James II, was overthrown, replaced by his Protestant daughter, Mary II, and her husband, William of Orange, who became William III of England. He commissioned Sir Christopher Wren to work on remodelling the upper wall of Windsor Castle, but the plans were cancelled when William died. So after that, he was succeeded by Mary's sister Anne, subject to the Oscar-winning film The Favourite. She was keen on horse racing and ordered the construction of Royal Ascot and started the tradition of the procession of racehorses from Windsor to Ascot. After Anne came a few Georges. George I and George II didn't care for Windsor Castle that much, 
and the 18th century saw it become something of a tourist attraction. Basically, you could go there if you had enough money to pay for Castle Keeper to let you in. However, George III was quite keen on Windsor, and he spent much of his confinement there after he was diagnosed with madness, as in the madness of King George III. Ah, of course. Or the madness of King George, if you're American. Because <laughs> there's, there's that famous thing where it was believed that American audiences would be confused if the film was called The Madness of King George III because they'd think it was the third film in a series. Oh, dear. But speaking of George III, I love where he's portrayed in Blackadder. Somebody told me my son was here. I wish him to marry this rose bush. So his son, George IV, who of course is played by Hugh Laurie in Blackadder, he was also keen on Windsor Castle and persuaded Parliament to vote for £300,000. So that's about £240 million in today's money for an extensive refurbishment. The work was started in 1824 and was done by architect Geoffrey Whiteville. It was probably the most significant development of Windsor Castle to date. It included raising the height of the round tower, building various new towers and reconstructing a lot of the state rooms. The work was done without much care for previous work. There was no concept of English heritage or listed buildings back then, with Prince Charles himself, our Prince Charles, Charlie, uh, he called it an act of vandalism. When the work was finally completed after George IV died, the cost had risen to over a million pounds. After George IV, there was William IV, and he was followed by Queen Victoria. She and her husband Albert made Windsor Castle their primary residence, with a train station being built in the town in 1847. A private chapel was created in the 1840s in the State Apartments of the Upper Ward for her. Albert died there in 1860, and Victoria kept the castle in a state of mourning, earning the moniker The Widow of Windsor from Rudyard Kipling. After Victoria died in 1901, her son Edward VII inherited the throne. He had a reputation as something of a playboy, and he set about modernising Windsor Castle, renovating rooms that hadn't been touched since Prince Albert died. During this time, electric lighting and central heating were installed. His successor, George V, continued some moderate restoration, but Edward VIII didn't care much for it. Edward abdicated after just a year to be succeeded by his brother, George VI. During his reign, Britain fought in the Second World War. Once again, Windsor Castle became used as a base, with a royal family using it to sleep in. They tried to create the impression that they were always at Buckingham Palace, though, but they returned to Windsor every night, in, in, you know, in secret, as much as you can keep secrets when you're the King of England. The castle was used as a storage facility. So France's stock of heavy water was moved there before France fell to the Nazis. George VI died in 1952 and his daughter became Elizabeth II, the current queen. Touch wood. Because <laughs> she's 95 and not looking too good. Yeah, just check again with your editing this. Yes, I There's still time to take it out. So she used Windsor Castle as her main weekend residence. A programme of renovation work was started in 1988. 
So that's a very brief history of the castle. What about the royals who were living there at the time? Well, there was Queen Elizabeth II, who was in the 40th year of her reign. Her husband, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, was happily alive and offensive. Therefore, children, who were all adults by 1992, were Prince Charles, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward. Charles and Diana married in 1981 in a huge ceremony, but of course their relationship was deteriorating by 1992. Charles was still married to Diana, but their separation was yet to be formally announced. Their sons, William and Harry, were 10 and 8 at the time. Save the fire. Unusually for a fire of this size, it started during the daytime. At 11.30am, a fire started in the private chapel, and it soon spread to other rooms of the state apartments. The castle's own chief fire officer, because the castle had its own fire brigade, Marshall Smith called the fire department in Reading to inform them of the blaze. While the fire crews were on their way, the salvage operation had already begun. Prince Andrew, without breaking into a sweat, was the main organiser. Paintings were quickly taken down from the walls in a matter that would probably make curators cry. You know, because usually when a priceless painting is taken down for cleaning or whatever, it's a big job to move it and because of the fire they were just grabbing paintings off the wall and chucking them down taking taking pictures from balconies chucking them onto the foreplay all that sort of stuff outside the castle townspeople got involved forming human chains to get artifacts out as quickly as possible some of the items were very difficult to move like large rolled up carpets they took about 50 people to carry but without coordination, the people at the end were dragged along by the people at the front. Which must have been quite funny to see. Okay, off we go to this big carpet. Why? what are you doing? So it was only when soldiers from a nearby barracks who could march in step got involved that the carpets got taken away. And quick march, one, two, one, two, off we go. So by 12.20, less than an hour after the fire was first reported, there were 35 fire engines on the scene from Berkshire and the surrounding counties. By this time, the fire had spread to St George's Hall, the largest room of the State Apartments. St George's Hall not to be confused with St George's Chapel, which is a completely different part of the castle. The fire had also spread to Brunswick Tower, a tower in the northeast of the castle. Prince Charles was informed of the fire and raced to be there from Norfolk. And I hear they got word to Prince Andrew as well at Peter Express and Woken. <laughs> yeah, indeed. By 1.30, the fire crews had created fire breaks, stopping the fire from spreading further. This brought the fire under control, even though it continued to burn. At 3.30, the floor of the Brunswick Tower collapsed, forcing firefighters to retreat. By the evening, the flames in the tower reached 50 feet in height, making for some dramatic pictures. And of course, that's what dominated the news at the time, because it looked like fire coming out of a chimney, really. At seven o'clock, the roof of St George's Hall collapsed. It wasn't until 2.30 in the morning that the fire was declared extinguished. Remarkably, for a fire that took over 35 fire engines and 1.5 million gallons of water to put out, no one died. 
In fact, only one painting was destroyed in the fire. A painting called George III and the Prince of Wales Reviewing the Troops by Sir William Beechey. That didn't make it out because it was just too big. Measuring four metres by five metres. What, bigger than this house? <laughs> Other items were lost, though, including furniture, porcelain, chandeliers, and their Willis organ. You know, one of those big type organs that was in the private chapel. Around one-fifth of the castle was on fire, and over 105 rooms were damaged. The great banqueting hall of St George's was destroyed. The private chapel was completely devastated, apart from the statue of St Michael, which had somehow survived. So it was completely gutted, the private chapel, apart from this one little statue just sticking up, just going, hello, I've made it. After the fire, investigators looked into the cause of it. Despite Eddie Izzard joking that it was Liz falling asleep with lighted fag, it was most likely caused by a spotlight being pressed up against a curtain. Investigators tried to recreate this and found that placing said spotlight up against said curtain would cause the curtain to ignite. Once the fire was out, the business of restoration started straight away. One of the unexpected effects of the fire was to unveil just how much had been covered up by the Wyattville refurbishment of 1824. An abandoned 40-foot well was discovered in one of the kitchens and the original roof was revealed. Must have been a bit like when people used to box up their fireplaces in the 1940s and people unboxing, you know, 50, 60 years later thinking, why was this ever covered up? This is beautiful. Possibly just as damaging to the building than the fire, if not more so, was the water. 1.5 million gallons of the stuff did not sit well with wooden beams. That was something that needed to be considered by the Restoration Committee, which was set up pretty much as soon as the fire was out. It was chaired by Prince Philip himself. Drying the place out completely would take around 10 years. So the decision was taken to strip the building back to the original stoneware required, and new wood was installed. Some dehumidifying and heating was done, and dogs were brought in to detect areas of dry rot. You know how dogs can sniff out stuff like drugs and bombs, apparently they can sniff out dry rot as well. Fair dues. I suppose it's a fungus, so... Mm-hmm. Then they had to think about what would happen with, with the damaged brooms. Did they put everything back as it was, or do something new? In the end, they went for a mix. The interior of St George's Hall was put back to how it was, but the roof was redesigned to something more like it was before Wyattville's remodelling. The chapel was redesigned by architect Giles Downs and featured a new roof made from curved oak beams. The stained glass in the chapel depicts scenes from the 1992 fire, including someone saving a portrait of Geoffrey Wyattville, which I think is a nice touch. Then there was the question of who was going to pay for it all. Oh, I think I can answer that. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, this sort of thing would have been done with insurance. You know, if your house burns down and it's insured, then your insurance company will give you a cheque to cover the house and its contents. Be that the Picasso or collection of classic cars. However, royal palaces are too valuable to be insured, so that wasn't an option. In the past, the government would pick up the bill, 
but the days of George IV asking Parliament to vote him £300,000 were over. So instead, the royal family came up with a plan. The Queen's Bank, Coots, announced an independent trust for private donations. 70% of the funding for restoration was planned to come from money raised by opening Buckingham Palace up to tourists. The Queen herself would contribute £2 million of her own money. So the royals claim that they were proud that the restoration was paid for without asking the taxpayer to fund it. Hmm. And who exactly was buying the tickets for Buckingham Palace? Well, yes, I think it's a bit of an odd claim when you consider that the royals own Wings Castle and Buckingham Palace through accidents of birth. But there you go. As it happens, the restoration was completed very quickly. The Queen hosted a reception for everyone who worked on the restoration on November the 20th, 1997, the 5th anniversary of the fire, and in time for the Queen and Prince Philip's golden anniversary. Oh, isn't that lovely? <laughs> and when did they release the hounds? Well, <laughs> in more recent times, the royal family rode out the coronavirus lockdowns at Windsor with the castle earning the nickname HMS Bubble. And of course, when Prince Philip died, he passed away at Windsor Castle. So there we are. Excellent. So, given that um, obviously Windsor Castle's involved in that and, uh, and Prince Andrew, I've looked into uh, all the all the various nonces in Simpsons history. Sorry, I mean, I've looked into the uh, whether Windsor Castle was ever in the Simpsons, and uh, yeah, it's, it's not in it. It's not in it at all. Um, the closest we'll get. And it's been a while since I've had to mention this one. Is when the family visit Buckingham Palace in season 15, episode 4, the Regina monologues, featuring noted turf J.K. Rowling and, of course, the war criminal Tory B. Lyons. <laughs> As for the royals themselves, Queen Elizabeth II can't stay out of the bloody show and has already debuted in our timeline. Knighting Krusty in season 4, episode 1, Camp Krusty. Prince Charles first appears in the Big Book of British Smiles in Season 4, Episode 17, Last Exit to Springfield, and both mother and son return in Season 21, Episode 20, to Surveil with Love. Looking further back in the line, both Henry VIII and Elizabeth I are portrayed by Simpsons characters in anthology episodes. The former by Homer, of course, in Season 15, Episode 11, Magical History Tour, and the latter by Selma in Season 20, Episode 20, Four Great Women and a Manicure. And finally, of course, Season 9, Episode 9, Realty Bites, features true royalty. The Lumber King. <laughs> Must buy lumber. But before you buy lumber, don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.